John Dillinger has gone down in history as the most notorious bank robber the United States has ever seen. The sheer audacity of his crimes continues to intrigue the media and the public. Much of his intrigue lies with the unknown. How did he pull everything off? How did he escape from jail twice? How did he evade the FBI for so long? And why did he do it all? Perhaps we can find some answers in this episode of Infamous Individuals. Hello, welcome to episode four. Today I am Morgan and you are still Dom? Still, still, until until the feds catch up with me again, I'll be Dom. <laughs> Have, haven't needed to change your identity just yet. Uh, today we will be diving into the daring and audacious life of John Herbert Dillinger. Um, do you know anything about today's subject, Morgan, I'm, I am so excited for this one because I I really don't. I, I mean, I know the name, I, I've... You know, heard the 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 main. You know the he's a bad guy story, right? But <laughs> I really, it's really not something I've I've ever dug into or or read anything about or heard anything about. So I'm I'm pretty excited for this one. Yeah, I was the same. I was like, oh, I know he's infamous. I don't know. Yeah, he's some kind of gangster or something. I don't know why. So uh, you know, I, I, like I know about the infamy, but I, I really want to know more <laughs> about the individual. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the two points of this uh, this podcast, so we'll definitely be getting into at least one of them. Um, but yeah, let's start right at the beginning. Uh, he was born into a middle-class family on June 22nd, 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that's America, for uh, those who are not well-versed in America. I mean, we're in Australia, but I feel like I know a lot about America. <laughs> I, I mean, it's one of those things right, where you, you never have to say the United States. It's, it's People just... I don't know, America has, is, is such a big thing in the world and our lives that you're just like, oh, yeah, Indiana. Yeah. You know, I say, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Dom from Melbourne, Australia. And yeah. Like, yeah, we know about America and then you go there and they're like, Australia. And they're like, is that, a, is that another country? And you're like, yeah, yeah well, <laughs> in fact, it is. Unfortunately, John experienced tragedy just before his fourth birthday when his mother died. And then his father remarried when John was nine, but he had a strained relationship with his stepmother, and he also endured physical punishment from his father. So not the greatest family upbringing. Yeah. To make it all the more confusing, when his father wasn't punishing John, he was spoiling him. He would beat him, then give him money for candy. On some days, his father would lock John in the house all day. On others, he would let him roam the neighborhood until dark. So I'm sure it was quite a confusing upbringing. Yeah, uh, for a child trying to figure out right from wrong, etc. Yeah, that's 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 very very mixed messages there, right? That's not not brilliant. It seems like overcorrection. The dad would be like, beat him, and then be like, fuck, uh, give him some money, <laughs> some money for candy, <laughs> like, like just complete overcorrection. Overcorrection and also exactly the wrong sort of thing to do, right? Yeah. Like, my goodness. Uh, it's no surprise that John was constantly getting into trouble. He led a neighborhood gang called the Dirty Dozen. Very cool, nice. name. Uh, very cool name. They pilfered coal from railroad freight cars and partook in acts of petty theft. So, you know, just kind of like, fu- like you know, pilfering childhood fun. Pilfering such a great word. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it takes, so you go from pilfering, which is like, that's fun. Yeah, and then you yeah. go to petty theft. You're like, getting yeah, up there. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, gets to like murder and burglary. And you're like, oh, but we're not there yet. No. We're not there yet. No. We're still the, the pilfering He's still stage. the cute little boy who pilfered things. He was also noted for his bewildering personality and for his bullying of smaller children. Not great traits. Uh, I wonder where he got that from. (laughs) 
<laughs> Who knows? Uh, at 16, John dropped out of school and began working at a machine shop where he did very well. However, his father feared that the city was corrupting his son, prompting him to move the family to Mooresville, Indiana in 1921. So, you know what? Like, a lot of... Looking back now, having uh, having re- read all this and then compiled it, and like, I think his dad had a very strong influence. Feeling like the dad probably isn't, yeah, the the, the best role model he here, got, right? He got a trade and he was getting his life in order. Yeah. And then the dad's like, like, you know what? You're, the city's corrupting you. He's like... Oh, yeah, no, look, he's gone from pilfering coal to what was probably quite a well-paying job as a machinist. To And the dad's like, nah. <laughs> Taking you somewhere where you're going to have no prospects. Yeah, so that if I was told you're going to Mooresville, I'd, like, talking about that is very depressing and like, oh, that's... My life is just heading downhill. Like, it's not a very it, uplifting name for a place. Apologies if you live there, but it does... It it sounds like a made-up name of a place that is very dull. Yeah. I, when I think of it, I think of black and white, essentially. I'm like, this is a, bla- <laughs> this is a black and white... This, they don't have colour yet. <laughs> colour hasn't reached that town yet. I mean, at the time, it probably hadn't. Probably hadn't. This relocation had little effect on John's behaviour. In 1922, he was arrested for auto theft and his relationship with his father continued to deteriorate. So pilfering to uh, petty theft to auto theft. So we're we're slowly moving up the list. Moving up the list. Still, nothing, nothing crazy yet. Nothing crazy. Nothing that would make someone infamous. This ultimately led to John joining the Navy in 1923. So once again, he tries to turn his life around. Uh, yeah, he served on the USS Utah uh, before deserting after only a few months. <laughs> Returning to Mooresville, where he met and married Beryl Hovius on April 12th, 1924. He was 20 and she was 16. So he was, he joined the Navy. He was like, I'm going to get my life shit together. And he was like, not for me. I, You know what? Mooresville, despite the name, really liked it. Going to head back there <laughs> Go back to and marry this uh, 16-year-old Beryl. Um and, you know, hopefully this goes well. Hopefully. This attempt uh, to settle down did not go well. Oh, no. Uh, John was having difficulty holding down a job as well as preserving his marriage. Mm. Uh, this led to John and his friend Ed Singleton planning a robbery. So oh, yeah. Another step up. Ed Singleton was a former convict who John met while working at a grocery store. Young and impressionable Dillinger was taken under Singleton's wing and accompanied him as he committed his first heist. So, you know, uh, kind of like how we met, you know? Yeah. The, the, the first heist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, working at a, at a grocery store and then we did a heist together. Yeah. And we use it to fund all of our podcasting mm. endeavours. On September 6th, 1924, the two held up a local grocer. After fighting with the owner during the robbery and knocking him unconscious, Dillinger fled the scene, thinking the owner was dead. <gasps> Upon hearing Dillinger's gun go off during the brawl, Singleton panicked and drove away with the getaway car, stranding Dillinger. So, you know, good friend. Uh, he was arrested. His father sternly advised him to plead guilty and take his punishment, which turned out to be quite harsh. <laughs> John was given the maximum penalty of 10 to 20 years in prison. Oh my goodness. Even though he had no previous criminal record. Singleton, who was much older and did have a prison record, served less than two years of his two to 14 year sentence, thanks to his lawyer. Oh, dad's well, not really doing a great <laughs> job here. <laughs> he ha- Yeah, he hasn't really guided... Uh, John's life very well. No, not at all. I mean, look, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> yeah, you should definitely, uh, you know, do the crime, do the time, right? But <laughs> I'm 
not advocating for trying to weasel out of, you know, your your uh, punishment. Look, you, look, as you always like to say, have you, a crack. you like to get a deal. If you don't have a lawyer, you're not getting a deal. You want a good deal. It's true. It's true. Do you the know. time, but maybe do less time. No one ever pays to. sticker price, right? <laughs> John was incarcerated at Indiana State Prison, and it was here that he learned the craft of bank robbery from fellow inmates. Oh, don't you just love prison? (laughs) Yeah, prison's just... It's like LinkedIn, but... (laughs) Criminals. Locked in, if you will. Locked in. (laughs) Save that for pitch and tent. I think of it as as some... Like, you know, you've got some young dude who's, who's on the wrong side of the tracks. He's stolen some cars. He's pilfered some coal. Now he's robbed a grocery store and um, we're sending him to uh, bad guy boot camp, yeah. right? Like We're going to reform him, Dom. <laughs> we're going to turn him into a bank robber. <laughs> well, the uh, uh, thing about that is upon his parole on May 10th, uh, 1933, he turned his knowledge to profit, robbing five Indiana and Ohio banks in four months and gaining his first notoriety as a daring, sharply dressed gunman. Hell yeah. I mean, if you're going to do something, do it in style, right? I mean, is that... That's got to be a, an important key to the, the story, right? Like, sharply dressed. You Think know? about everyone who's, like, inf- like, most of them were pretty well dressed. And, like, I think there's always, like, the thing is, like, the distinction of, like, the people who are infamous. They're sharply dressed and sometimes brutal. But, like, the sharply dressed, well-mannered ones are always, like, remembered, like, um, D.B. Cooper, who I'm sure we'll eventually mm-hmm. do an episode on. He was always, he was always, like, he, every time they talk about him, they talk about him as being sharply dressed and actually very polite when he robbed the plane. <laughs> so if you're, if you're going to crime, there's no reason not to look your best and be polite and uh, use please and thank you. I mean, clearly there, there were plenty of bank robbers around in order to, to teach Dillinger, but they weren't as sharply dressed, so yeah, they don't get a podcast. teach style. On June 21st, 1933, he robbed his first bank, taking $10,000 from the New Carlisle National Bank in New Carlisle, Ohio. That's got to be a lot. Yeah. That back then? Back then? I should have done a conversion, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> on August 14th, Dillinger robbed a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. Tracked by police from Dayton, Ohio, he was captured and later transferred to the Allen County Jail in Lima to be indicted in connection to the Bluffton robbery. Uh, after searching him before letting him into the prison, the police discovered a document which appeared to be a prison escape plan. Uh, they demanded <laughs> Dillinger tell them what the document meant, but he refused. <laughs> um, yeah. You know his dad would have been like, now, son, <laughs> you should tell them about the prison escape plan. It's like... it's like Here's some money for candy. He was prepared, but <laughs> imagine like someone's going in and like you find a prison escape plan. As a, poli- as a, as a correctional officer, does that make you feel more confident or less? Like, you found the plan, but he's not telling... Do you be like, well, we, we found the plan. It's probably not going to happen. Or are you like, something's happening. We just I mean, <laughs> I'm a bit scared of a dude who's done his escape research before getting arrested, yeah. right? <laughs> You're like, holy shit. Most people, they'll, they'll do the first couple of years and then start thinking about escape. Yeah. This, dude, this dude's mapped it all out from the outside. <laughs> it's like, God, he's probably, he's probably already dug the tunnel, right? You know, it's just a he matter of which cell he's into. <laughs> yeah. He's got to get put in the right solitary cell. <laughs> I've seen this movie. Four days later, using the same plans, eight of Dillage's friends escaped from the Indiana State Prison using shotguns and rifles that had been smuggled into their cells. During the escape, they shot two guns. 
this group would be known as the First Dillinger Gang. It consisted of Pete Pierpoint, Russell Clark, Charles Makeley, Ed Schaus, Harry Copeland, and John Red Hamilton. Uh, one of the gang's first missions after their escape was to free Dillinger, who, as previously mentioned, was being held at the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. So uh, he's got a gang together. He's got a gang together. Yeah. Good way to get a gang is to break them out of prison. Yep. I mean, they owe you now. Fantastic if you could break them out of prison while, while you're, you're still, still in, in prison, prison. Right. And then have them, having apparently just met and become your first gang, break you out of prison. Yeah. Uh, so three of the gang members, Pierpoint, Clark and Makeley, arrived in Lima on October 12th, 1933, where they uh, impersonated Indiana State Police officers, claiming they had come to extradite Dillinger to Indiana. When the sheriff, Jess Saba, asked for their credentials, Pierpoint shot Saba dead and released Dillinger from his cell. Uh, the four men escaped back to Indiana where they joined up with the rest of the gang. So um, be careful when asking for credentials because they could just shoot you. <laughs> really good. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's lo- a credential. See, I love the, the idea of looking back because it's like when you look, when it's written out, it's like they they impersonated Indiana State Police officers, but then like, it sounds all official, but did they just rock up in like normal clothes and claim they were, and then he was like, <laughs> all right, let me see. <laughs> yeah, some, like- <laughs> we're here to extradite Dillinger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are you, mate? Show us your ID. <laughs> like, it sounds a lot more professional than that. Way. I'm sure they just rocked up and went, uh, yeah, we're police. And he's like, no, you're not. And then they shot him. Like, Probably a lot more along those lines. <laughs> it's like, why even bother to shoot him <laughs> off the bat, right? So after this is when the Dillinger gang spree properly began. John and the gang are known to have participated in 12 separate bank robberies between June 21st, 1933 and June 30, 1934. Uh, they raided police stations for guns and ammunition and used the lamb technique to rob banks. Dom, are yes. you familiar with the lamb technique? I mean, obviously we are. But for the sake of our viewers or listeners, could you explain the lamb technique? I sure me? can. Um, I, actually, I'm sure most of our listeners are. You may not recognize the name, but I'm sure you're familiar with many elements of the technique uh, from your days as a master criminal, obviously. Everyone knows this. <laughs> so the system was developed by Herman Lamb, a German-American bank robber who was also known as Baron Lamb or Thomas Bell. To I assume <laughs> one of those is a lot more uh, criminal name than the other. I assume they teach you like this. The Lamb technique really does sound like a thing that they would teach you at a seminar <laughs> for bank robbery. Yeah, right. Which so is what I assume prison is. Prison is just uh, it's like university, but you can't escape. Uh, so, Lamb was a former Prussian army soldier who immigrated to the United States. He believed a heist required all the planning of a military operation. He pioneered the concept of casing a bank and developing escape routes before conducting the robbery. Uh, sorry. So, up until, this, <laughs> up until this point, people are just like... They're just smashing grabbing. <laughs> like, hey, man, you want to... I'm a bit bored. Why are we robbing a bank today? <laughs> yeah, he. some would say he finessed it. He, uh... He developed the casing, which is uh, involved noting the movement of guards, reviewing the floor plans, and sometimes the Baron would send men in impersonating reporters to get a better look at the inside of the banks and the vault. This, I, mean, uh, I mean, okay, great, but imagine doing that today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you just walk into a Westpac and you're like, oh, g'day. I'm with the Herald Sun. Uh, can I have a look at your vault? Um, yeah, I, I look. There's benefits to being a pioneer. <laughs> you know, they, they usually you're the first, so you have a lot of issues, lot less issues. I was like, oh, the, the papers want to have a look at our, have a look at our money. 
Dillinger actually used this specific uh, technique. Uh, he would send men in posing as security system salesmen. Now, that's a better thing to yeah. pretend to be. But yeah, as you can see, uh, these are all the hallmarks of what I personally would consider a heist or a bank robbery came from uh, Baron Lamb. Yeah. I mean, I guess before him, these are just, as you said, smash and grabs. Yeah. And now this this is the the invention of the heist. Yeah, pretty much. He also created the idea that each man would have a specific role and pioneered the concept of having a getaway driver whose only job was to drive and do it well. And he did this by hiring men who had racing experience. That makes the most sense to me. Yeah, like that's like these are things that you see in movies nowadays. And it's yeah. like like this is the man who, who's like, why isn't there a movie about him? Like about like the first heist. The, f- the like, first where heist. People, it's like, hey, come to a racing. He's like approaching a racing coach. I was like, I want you in a heist. It's like, what the, f- why? I'm a racing driver. Like who was in a crash and I can't work anymore, but I need money to support my, f- it writes itself. I really want to see that film. <laughs> Um, so eventually Lamb met his end after a shootout with police. However, two members of his gang survived the shootout and were sent to the Indiana State Prison. It was there they met John Dillinger who got them to teach him everything they knew. There it's you all go. connected. All connected. Uh, I mean, does this mean that Dillinger was perhaps the first non-Lamb practitioner of the Lamb method? Yes. He's 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 really a pioneer. Yeah, he 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 had, he saw what Lamb was doing. He really liked it. He was like it. journalists. That's stupid. <laughs> that's he was like, I love what you're doing. There's one small thing I'm going to tweak, but apart from that, going to try and sell them a security system. <laughs> uh, Dillinger and Co. pulled several bank robberies and continued to plunder police arsenals, stealing several machine guns, rifles, and revolvers, a quantity of ammunition, and several bulletproof vests. On December 14. John Hamilton and Dillinger gang member shot and killed a police detective in Chicago. A month later, the Dillinger gang killed a police officer during the robbery of the First National Bank of East Chicago, India. So definitely uh, escalated from pilfering at this point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Unless, you know, you're pilfering policemen of their lives. <laughs> Doesn't have quite the same ring to it. I mean, how, how bad does a crime have to be before it's no longer pilfering? Uh, that's a uh, that's a question for another day. Don't <laughs> I don't want to get into that. <laughs> On January twenty fifth, nineteen thirty four, Dillinger and his gang were captured in Tucson, Arizona. He was extradited to Indiana and imprisoned at the Lake County Jail in Crown Point to face charges for the murder of a policeman that I previously mentioned. So, um, look, he's in jail again in Indiana. Been great track record so far. Yes. They they have of uh, keeping him in jail. Um, authorities uh, boasted that the jail was escape-proof. Uh, oh, no. No, however, no, no. Come um, on. This is a dude who's already planned so many, so many escapes, so many prison breaks. However, on March 3rd, 1934, he executed his most celebrated breakout. With a razor and a piece of wood, he carved a fake pistol, blackened it with shoe polish, and forced the guards to open the door to his cell. Then he grabbed two machine guns, locked up the guards and several trustees, and fled. Nice. Yeah, like, I mean, he's got some acting chops. I do like a good, I do like a good prison break. It's, and, and, and I like how simple they are. They're not like, they're not overly thought out. It's literally just like, oh, I'll get my friends to burst in in the first, in this instance, he's like, it's a little creative. He's like, I'll make a fake gun. Yeah. (laughs) Bit of of arts and crafts. Yeah. And And we'll duck out of, duck out of the jail. He made it in woodshop. Um, 
It was then, however, that Dillinger made the mistake that would cost him his life. Spoiler alert. He stole the sheriff's car and drove across the Indiana-Illinois line, heading for Chicago. Now, I don't know if you know much about this, but uh, I've actually heard a lot about it recently because I've been listening to a lot of case file. Mm. But uh, by taking a stolen vehicle across state lines, he committed a federal offense (gasps) and the FBI was able to launch its own manhunt. Oh, no. So now the FBI are involved. Right, so that's never a good so. Thing. So, pro tip here: if you're going to commit crime, just keep, keep it within keep your... it to like individual states. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, don't do anything that that brings it up to a federal level because then the feds can get involved. But that was our mistake. But if you if you just if you're wanted in just a bunch of different states, they're all having to like coordinate with each other and like that's a bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah, that good, is good pro tip. Yeah, it's just don't don't do anything across states. Very easy. The it's FBI not- literally will be like, we can't do anything. I mean, we do give you valuable life advice on this program. Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is history, but you can learn things from history. It's very, very true. The breakout was followed by m- more bank robberies, surprise, surprise, with new Confederates, uh, notably Babyface Nelson, uh, who is another name who you might be familiar with. Uh, over the course of Dillinger's year long crime spree, oh. year long. Several police were killed by his gang, and he barely escaped FBI entrapments and shootouts in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Eventually, he made his way to Chicago, where he reportedly had plastic surgery to alter his appearance. So, yeah, he's really doing everything to avoid going back to the clink. Uh, I mean, he must have been out of escape plans at that point. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, I had two cards, and I've played them both. But, like, this is a dude who's, who's doing it all, right? Like, every... Every single thing that you think of when you think of, you know, bank robberies and crime sprees and prison breaks, it's all Dillinger. Yeah, he he, he started it all. And uh, uh, on his 31st birthday, uh, happy birthday, June 22nd, 1934, Dillinger was declared America's first public enemy number one. Oh. What a birthday present. Um, <laughs> the following day, the federal government promised a $10,000 reward for his capture and a $5,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. Sure, that's very good money. Again, I forgot to do the comparison. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Are there other public enemies? Is there a public enemy number two? And uh, like, how long is that list? I don't know. Let's have a quick Google. Is it like being in line for the throne? Right? Like, like if number one, you become number two? If, yeah. Like if like if they catch number one, does the, do you get a promotion? Right? Like, to that end, is everyone a public enemy at some point? Potentially, like, like, like we're like, just like really far down the list. Just really, really far down the list. Like, but if, I am public enemy number one million two hundred and thirty-seven. That's really high up the list. Dom, we run a podcast where we're training people to be criminals. What did you think? <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> but like, man, you put yourself in the in the low millions. That's really high up the list. <laughs> I've got a lot going on, Dom. <laughs> I got some pilfering under my belt. Um, and just in case you're curious, Public Enemy Number Two is a novel written by Anthony Horowitz, <laughs> who I do love. So I think I, I think it's the Diamond Brothers. I think I have read it before. Um, oh, yeah. So Dillinger lived an audacious life. So one would expect that his exit from the world would be just as audacious. However, John's end simply came through a trap set up by the FBI, Indiana Police, and a brothel madam named Anna Sage. Yeah, you know, just uh, that working together, you yep. get the job done. I I, I, the, the, I like how the the tables have turned, and 
you know, Dillinger has been doing these relatively simple pans, plans, but with like a fun twist. Now the FBI is pulled one of those. <laughs> so, um, Anna Sage, originally Anna Kumpanis, was uh, from Romania and was facing deportation proceedings for operating several brothels, uh, which, you know, happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, she thought that if she turned Dillinger over to the authorities, she would not be deported. So, you know, she had a, she had her own little uh, scam going on. Yeah. And, uh, Making um, her own deals. Yeah, man. Like, you gotta, you gotta, like, if the police come to you and you're like, we know about your thing, sell someone out. Yeah. If we're, if we're continuing the lessons in this podcast, mm-hmm. sell someone out. Yeah, you gotta, like, like we said earlier, you gotta be making those deals. So on July 22nd, 1934, Dillinger invited Sage and Polly Hamilton, his current girlfriend, to the movies. They saw Manhattan Melodrama with Clark Gable. Don't know if you're familiar with it. I haven't seen it. What it's got a, a 7.2 on IMDb. What a move. What, what, what are you referring to? Like going to the movies? Is that your... Yeah. With your girlfriend. And a brothel owner. And a brothel owner. Yeah, I mean, who are we to judge what company he keeps? Um, when the movie was finished, uh, no doubt to applause, I assume, mm-hmm. Dillinger walked out of the theatre between Sage and Hamilton. He emerged to find FBI agents waiting for him. Dillinger attempted to escape, but he was shot to death in the alley. Quite an uh, unceremonious end. That is unceremonious. That is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. He tried to run away and they just shot him in alley. Which is, you know, very similar to Batman's origin story. So, (laughs) don't know what conclusion you want to draw from that. But Interesting. Interesting point. Except, yeah, so in Batman, his parents get shot by a robber, and this one of the police are shooting a robber. And I don't know. There's, there's... It's really just the shooting in the alley. Yeah. But we... I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> Look, I, I think it's I think alleys are like of, of places to get shot. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> Surely. I They're dark. Have... You can't see anything going on. Per, uh, not the great place for a shooting. I would have put alley as my like number one shooting location. <laughs> well, that's that's where we differed. <laughs> <laughs> Dillinger's family gave him a Christian burial on July 25th, 1934. He was laid to rest in the family plot, Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. A week after Dillinger's death, his family signed a contract with a vaudeville show. In between acts at the Lyric Theatre in Indianapolis, they talked about Dillinger's life. So, like, I guess uh, to end this, uh, we would say that this podcast is the equivalent of the intermission of a vaudeville show. That's That's... All if ever aspired to be. Yeah, so uh, with that, I guess like on with the vaudeville show, whatever, whatever's on today, <laughs> coming right up. <laughs> but no, that is the uh, that is the um, life of John Herbert Dillinger. Did you learn anything, Dom? So much, <laughs> but mostly what to do if you're ever on the run. I learned maybe just stick to pilfering. You know, just stick to don't pilfering. escalate. Don't escalate. Do enough pilfering. Keep it, keep it under the radar, and you'll make as much as a bank robber. Yeah, you just it, so you can make so that's you can be quick and like big and do bank robbing and probably have a shorter life. Or you can stretch it out, just like a bit just of pilfering here and there. Keep nicking that coal. Yeah, nick the coal. <laughs> Thank you for listening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This has been another episode of Infamous Individuals. We discussed John Herbert Dillinger. We'll be back with another episode. And uh, until then, don't do any crimes across state lines. That is very solid advice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Specifically just crimes across state lines. All other crimes we have no opinion on. 
who am I? Who are we to tell you how to live your life? Also, we need more. Like this is this is a show that has an eventual end date. But if the more people committing crimes, mm. the more infamous individuals there are to talk about. So you know what? Thank you for listening. If you would like to be on the show, go out and commit some crimes, and we will cover your story. Thank you and good night. Dom's giving me a look. See you later. Four bills up next. This has been a Sparky Trap Radio production. For more Sparky Trap Radio content, please head to sparkytrap.com.